Welcome to Couch Crusaders! That's Connie over there, and uh, I'm Tyler over here. Connie, how are things on your end of uh, these grand old United States of America? It's pretty good. Uh, movies movies are, are good, again. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. What do you want me to say? Stop making that face. <laughs> I'm not making any faces. <laughs> I'm doing well. How are you doing personally? I'm I'm personally doing fantastic. I'm not even gonna lie. I'm I'm just crushing life right now. But as per usual, right? Um, yeah, things are good. But more than anything, I am filled with joy and excitement this week because not only, as everybody knows, did a new trailer for Star Wars come out, and of course, Star Wars Eight: The Last Jedi is super exciting. I already got my tickets for opening night IMAX showing. Uh, but even more exciting than that is that there was a new Justice League trailer that came out one day before the Star Wars trailer, and everybody missed it because they were too busy That's talking about Star Wars. Super funny. <laughs> yep, it just kind of slid under the radar. Do people use and the you... word "pwn" anymore? Because they got pwned. No, they don't, and uh, they didn't. So. Shut up. <laughs> uh no the justice league trailer actually looks surprisingly fun everybody smiles in it which is very unusual for a dc film uh i don't know that it necessarily looks good but it looks enjoyable so uh so i'm on board with it what is the deal what is like how do you feel about having to potentially watch another shitty dc movie I love every second of it, honestly. <laughs> I mean, it, look, it, will it wind up an inevitable heartbreak for me? Probably so. But I've come to terms with that, and if I can get, like, 15 minutes of enjoyment out of it, it's worth the price of admission for me. Okay, let's talk about Star Wars. That's something I could talk about. Okay, did you watch I assume you watched the new trailer. For Star Wars, not for Justice League. Yeah, yeah. right, right, right. Any Any thoughts about it off the top of your head? Um, I just like the way that it looks super different, and I think that's just a byproduct of hiring someone like Ryan Johnson to helm it, you know? Yeah, I think, uh, I think the visual style was the thing that really jumped out for me. You know, obviously JJ's movie looked clean and well shot, and there was plenty of good visual stuff in it, um, but this one just seems more artfully put together. Um, it definitely seems like the, the scenes are staged in a way that that lends more to a photography feel than uh jj's kind of big blockbuster feel so i'm excited to see if this one feels more intimate because of the visual direction uh as well as you know obviously this is going to be i assume an emotional story based on it being the second movie in a star wars franchise which is kind of what they try to do is just recapture the magic of episode five um so i assume it'll be emotional lots of revelations about things and i'm excited to see exactly how it feels uh, but but the trailer looks promising it looks as promising as any trailer i've seen this year and uh if there's one thing star wars is really good at still it's putting together a trailer because even their trailers for like rogue one looked really good and rogue one was a mediocre movie but oh but i liked it but yeah it was look it was good but like eh, kind of mediocre in a lot of ways um but the trailer, I mean, the trailer for it was phenomenal. The trailer for Seven was beyond amazing. And the trailer for this one is continually good. So their marketing team needs to get out more. They need to go right. help out films like Mother or something like uh, that. 
I will say at the end of watching this trailer for eight, I was like, like when, when Ray's like, like basically like she's hinting at possibly joining the dark side. I was like, yeah, like as soon as the last Jedi came on screen, I was like, wow, I did not realize that like takes on a whole new meaning. At first I was like, oh yeah, the last Jedi, like last force for good. And I was like, no, like she might be the last one because she's (laughs) walking over. I like lost my shit. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. I, I, I don't know that I've talked about it. I feel like I've probably talked about it on this podcast before, but my longstanding prediction for this movie, uh, or for the entire trilogy, really, uh, based on some of the old Star Wars properties that are no longer canon because they got rid of the extended universe. Um, but I really think they're going to have Rey slip to the dark side a little bit, and they're going to have Kylo come the opposite direction and come over to the light side after being let down by the allure of the dark side in this film. So I think we're going to get a character switch between the two of them wow. and then redemption stories in the third one. And I think it'll make for a really cool trilogy as a whole. I've I've told most people I talk about Star Wars with this projection I have. Uh, the only problem is that's like my ideal scenario and I don't want to get too excited about it because then when it doesn't happen, I'll be disappointed that it's generic, you know? Um, again, I think you should not put your hopes and dreams all into one basket and just, like, get other hobbies. I have two baskets. I've got uh, Justice League and Star oh, Wars. Good. I don't know if you heard me. Oh, good. Um, no, I'm very pumped. I, I think just, I don't know. Obviously, I don't think they would have brought Ryan back for nine, but I just really like Ryan. If you haven't seen Looper, you should. That's just, like, something... Well, we'll be talking about a sci-fi movie that looks unlike anything you'll ever see this year soon, but um, Looper is definitely something, it's like, is a movie that you, I don't think, it's like wholly original. You've just never seen anything like it, like what they attempt to do in that Yeah, L- L- Looper's really high quality, and uh, and I would have liked, like you said, I would have liked to see Ryan come back for episode nine, but uh, I think with his addition to this even if he's not the one helming up episode nine that style and the influence is going to carry over a little bit because jj does a good job about not disrupting things in film trilogy or film series you know he's not going to come in and change the tone wildly it's gonna it's gonna carry over pieces of that so yeah i'm, I'm excited for it uh, great trailer I like I said about tickets as soon as I could because I, I, I need to see Star Wars. I just I mean also we'll talk about this theme that I really appreciate. I like that sequels to these like or sequels and major blockbuster franchises are becoming their own standalone films or have a potential to become their own standalone film. Um, even though they'll probably be succeeded by a shit ton of sequels, but I mean you have this, we have the movie we're about to talk about, and then you have like Thor Ragnarok. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah, helmed by very original filmmakers who don't normally do this type of stuff, but when given the chance, are bringing like a whole new vision and just look and feel to a beloved series. It's pretty cool. I'm excited. Actually, that that's a good point. I'm just, I'm just kind of thinking about it out loud now, and this could be like an amazing year for the sequel. You know, it's not often that we get a like a perfectly crafted sequel to a, a movie, but We've had one this year now, and uh, potentially we can have two more by the end of the year. So, right. Uh, I don't know. It could be really good. I, I I think these directors are really coming in with 
unique ideas working in the scope of the films that they're making sequels to and uh, delivering good products. So without further ado, without further let's, ado, let's jump into Blade Runner 2049, which is the movie we both watched this week. And it's what we're going to spend most of our time on. Uh, I'll probably tie it back in a little bit to the original Blade Runner, because obviously there's a lot of interworking pieces with it. Um, but if you haven't seen Blade Runner 2049, turn off this podcast right now and go watch it because uh, because a lot of people aren't seeing it because, I don't know, it's kind of slipping through the cracks. And it's, I'm going to be honest, Connie, I think this is the best movie I've seen this year by a, a sizable I would margin. agree. I would agree. With the exception and of I, Logan. I really like Logan. Logan. Logan was really good, but I still think this is a much more thoughtfully made mo- film and a much more creatively made film i think logan has a lot of heart and i think logan's still a really good product but this is just on another level of artistry for me i mean this avoids a lot of genre tropes it really is innovative in visuals and innovative in how it does it you know how it acts as a sequel um i don't know this this movie is very unlike many other things you'll see in sci-fi which is always a good feeling when you watch a sci-fi movie to actually feel like you're watching something fresh. And uh, I was surprised. I was not expecting that much out of this movie. Even after the positive reviews, I just expected to have a good time watching a sequel to a beloved classic that I liked. And uh, instead we got this, we got this great product. Uh, Do you want to give us a quick summary of Blade Runner 2049? Yeah, I'll run it down real fast. So This is set in the year 2049. Uh, It is 30 years to the dot after the events of the original Blade Runner. And in this Blade Runner universe, uh, corporations like the Terrell Corporation and uh, what's the corporation in the new one called? Wallace. The Wallace Corporation. They've invented uh, these android synthetic people, uh, basically as slave labor. Um, They call them replicants and... In the original Blade Runner, Harrison Ford is a detective who helms up a task force to hunt down these replicants who are, you know, starting to fight for their freedom and uh, they become outlawed on Earth. And the Blade Runner job, as these detectives are called, is to hunt down replicants and retire them. In other words, murder them. And uh, that's what the original film revolves around is Harrison Ford tracking down four replicants This new one involves Ryan Gosling, who is himself a new version of a replicant, one that is now legal thanks to the Wallace Corporation. Uh, He hunts down other replicants, older models that are still in the fringe, and he is a Blade Runner himself. As he investigates um, this mysterious case of a replicant that he kills, he finds out that there is a replicant child born, the first ever instance of a replicant reproducing and his police chief sets him, you know, out to investigate. And as his investigation goes deeper and deeper, he starts to suspect that his life might not be what it seems. And it leads him into uh, a bunch of characters from the original film. Uh, and uh, I don't want to spoil anything because this movie has not only a couple great twists in it, but it has a really great progression of story. And I don't want to get too into the details of that at this moment. Uh, we'll get into little, uh, spoilers a little later, later on. But, uh, but that's kind of a, a plot summary that I feel like paints enough of a p- picture. It's a very cyberpunk future, a very grungy, dirty Los Angeles. And uh, in this one, in 2049, there's sort of a post-apocalyptic feel to it because there's a, 
a plague or a virus or something that's wiped out all of the food supplies in the world. And so everybody's kind of recovering from that. That's, that was a really good summary. Thank you. Uh, I'm, like I said, I'm trying not to give away too much because I loved, 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 loved this movie. And I would hate to have it spoiled if, uh, if I hadn't seen it yet. So, um, Connie, just give me a couple of your first impressions after you walked out of the theater from this one. Um, I thought, I, I was telling my friend that I saw it with, it was like the first time in a very long time that I had a lot to think about after leaving the theater about like what it means to have a soul. Ryan Gosling's character, he's a replicant. He's soulless. He wasn't born. Um, and you know, as you said, as he investigates further into the case, he realizes that maybe there is a purpose to his life. Um, and it's just it's just so profound to, to follow a character who is, you know, their greater motivation is in search of a higher purpose, and it's dangled in front of him the whole time in the film. And then the way that the story kind of, like, neatly wraps up that storyline is very heartbreaking, but very well told. Like, the story, as with the original, um, you know, it's very it's a very slow-paced film, and that's the style of it. It's There's a lot of scenes, very pretty... Uh, prettily set up scenes of two characters talking, just talking. There's no action. Um, there's a lot of scenes like that, but I think that's what makes Blade Runner, this whole Blade Runner series now, very different because it's not just like bang, 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 you know, gun, like gun action all the time. There's a lot of deep, like, themes that, you know, are thought provoking and challenge you to, to think deeply about what it means to live in a world that is like fantastical right like what is real what is hinged to reality um i thought it was really beautifully told also beautifully shot shout out to roger Deakins mm -hmm. one more time there are some images in this film that will be forever seared into my mind just like things colors i've never seen before um lots of great symbolism in the way that he set up certain shots um Wow. Also, Ryan Gosling is always great to look at. Anyway, yep. He also, is always great to look at. Harrison and actually, Ford, I think in that... Harrison Ford, he's still got it. I'm sorry. He's got it. Yeah. He always, he's always had it. Let's not do ourselves. <laughs> uh, no, I think in that short, short little bit you gave there, you actually touched on three of my favorite things about the original Blade Runner. And it's three things that not only were carried over into this film, but actually done almost better in a lot of ways than the original one. But... Uh, Obviously, the imagery is what the original Blade Runner is probably most famous right, for. Right. You know, it set up this very uh, dark, noir, sort of sci-fi LA setting, uh, provided some really beautiful images. And the first one is probably more slow-paced than 2049, so it's uh, less accessible for a lot of people. General audiences did not like it when it came out uh, originally. Uh, and But even those people who are critics of it and say the story is too slow or the story isn't eventful enough, they always stop to say, but I love the imagery in it. You know, the, the shots are beautiful. This world that it creates is beautiful. And all that is moved over to 2049 and done, I think, to an even greater degree. Um, I'll get a little bit more into the visuals in a minute here because there was so much stuff that blew me away in it. Um, but the second thing that I love about the original Blade Runner is the action pieces. Uh, this is not an action movie in the traditional sense of you have a protagonist who is a great fighter or, you know, an amazing 
athlete or you know the world's greatest assassin it's just a guy basically with a gun running around he's a cop for the most part and so the action set pieces are people kind of clumsily punching each other or people running away from things and again that's all carried over into this ryan gosling doesn't show a lot of pain because he's an android or a replicant and so he'll get stabbed occasionally and not react to it much so in that sense he's a little more invulnerable than harrison ford in the original film but even so if he gets punched he just gets punched and falls over you know it's not like there's a ton of like kung fu hand-to-hand combat yeah yeah. uh in in fact there's a beautiful fight scene in this in a sinking ship or a sinking car really uh and it's one of the best action scenes i've seen in a movie in a long time because it's so clumsy and so harrowing it just feels real because everything hits the way it should and none of it seems contrived it's just it's just a beautiful situation perfectly shot um with believable action in it and i've always liked that in this fantastical world the action is really grounded in reality i think that adds a lot to the believability of blade runner and then the final thing i love about the original blade runner and this is uh the most important thing thematically is it really really makes you think about what it means like you said to have a soul to be human and that's really the big takeaway from the first film is you know, what does it take to be a person? What does it mean to be alive? And uh, all of those ideas are explored even further in Blade Runner 2049. And uh, I don't know, I've just never seen a sequel come in and understand its source material so well that it's able to do better, especially after such a long period as this. And you, you can tell that Denis Villeneuve has a lot of respect for the original Blade Runner. And he really took the time to make this a product that honors the original film um, through its visuals and its tone. So um, I don't know. That's, that's, I have a lot of reverence for both of these movies now because they're both so thoughtfully crafted. And and I think that says a lot about the filmmaking. I thought it was, I thought this, I thought if anything, like, okay, other than the fact that you and I have both been saying like this film should take, best cinematography easily in the Oscars race this year, but I also feel like sound mixing and sound editing definitely as well. There's a scene, there's a fight scene that takes place in a club where um, uh, there are projections on stage of historical performers like Elvis or uh, uh, Marilyn Monroe, uh, but it keeps cutting in and out because the projections keep fizzling or the connection's bad. And so the sound goes really loud in and out. Um, it, but it's so beautiful to watch because I don't know. Usually when you're watching a giant action scene, it's just loud the whole way through. But this film mm-hmm. plays with silence a lot of times because I, it, it like meshes well with, you know, the slow moving, slow paced dialogue scenes. This, um, you know, he's like very simple, like you said, clumsily shot hand combat scenes, but I really appreciated how, and obviously Hans Zimmer is very clearly the composer in this. There were more wahs in, in this movie than, you know, mm-hmm. th- than, than you would expect. But, um, yeah, I was just really taken away, blown, blown, blown away by how, how the sound really contributed to this otherwise very slow moving, thoughtful story. Um, I think that scene in particular in that club where the productions are 
fizzling in and out, and the sound just, like, cuts in and out really loudly. It's very jarring for you as a viewer, but it holds your attention the whole time. And I, I think that's, like, that sort of imagery is what defines Blade Runner. It's these bizarre, uh, retro-futuristic yeah. images that that don't... Maybe they don't even really have symbolic purpose for being in the scene, but it feels natural for the world, and it's very, very immersive, very, very captivating, and it's wholly unlike anything you're going to see in another movie. Uh, speaking of the sound, real quickly, Hans Zimmer did a fantastic job yeah. with the score, uh, and he, he's obviously one of the best composers in the game right now. Of course, he can get ragged on occasionally for having too many like bombs in his score or whatever, but... Uh, but it works yeah, in this movie. It really this well. movie is, and and that was so crucial for me because the original score of Blade Runner, uh, the original movie, is done by Vangelis, and it is just a, a beautiful, haunting, incomplete score in that original movie. It feels so empty, and it feels so whimsical, and uh, it really sets the entire tone of the first movie. I wasn't sure if they were going to try and just kind of copy that for this movie, and they didn't at all. This is this score in this one is very different than the original movie, but much more appropriate for the tone of this film. And uh, I think Hans Zimmer hit the nail on the head. I, th- I think he, he scored this movie about as perfectly as it could be. Uh, I was happy to hear that they didn't just try and recapture their former glory with the, the Vangelis soundtrack, but... Um, but they came up with something original that, again, works really, really well in context. Yeah. Uh... Now, I just wanted to say, uh, I think for for me more than anything, this movie does something that's very, very special in science fiction. And it's something we don't get to see a lot. And the whole time I was watching, I was just very excited about this. Uh, Connie, have you ever watched the hit motion picture Minority Report? Oh, wouldn't you like to know, person that recommended me and let me the DVD, unfortunately? That was a low point yes. in our friendship, by the way. It was like, Look, oh, I thought we were buds, but you lied to me and you told me this and was good. Me, made me watch Minority Report. Well, yeah. Minority Report, for all its flaws in a story and Tom Cruise, <laughs> uh, it it kind of set this bar for science fiction for a while. And it still actually has a lot of ramifications with its portrayal of technology and its portrayal of um, the future in this movie, I guess. Like you see, you see the the famous scene where Tom Cruise has his gloves on and he's like motioning toward a computer screen and controlling it with uh, these gloves. That sort of technolo- technological innovation is the stuff that sci-fi geeks like me love to see in sci-fi films. And that's why like, of course I don't like Minority Report that much, but I've watched it probably six times, like just because it, it's so unique in the way that it sets forth its vision of the future, um, that it, it influences films for years to come after it. You know, a lot of people kind of recapture these technological things it suggests. And uh, watching Blade Runner 2049, basically the whole time, I couldn't help but think this is the new visual standard, the new oh, yeah. technological standard for future stuff. I mean, everything in this related to the future technology is just incredible. Like, oh my goodness. Um, It seems like stuff that our technology that we have would progress into, which is a big point. And it feels so natural the way it's used in the world. And so 
appropriate. You know, there's nothing goofy sci-fi in this. Everything is fluent in these people's lives in the film. And uh, it's just it's just a sci-fi standard setter. And I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of these ideas and technologies that it introduces in this film be recycled in films past this for years to come. Right. Uh, it was just stunning to look at. And that was one of my vi- biggest visual compliments to this film was it managed to obviously keep the cyberpunk feel, but introduce a whole lot of new technology ideas that it had um, that are just gorgeous and just really, really innovative. Right. Like you want to talk about world building? Like when I was watching this film, it was so interesting. Like I felt like I was being, someone was like holding my hand and like slowly, slowly introducing me to this world and was very, thoughtful and aware of you know i might have a question about how this technology works oh you are gonna explain it in the scene literally right after i have that thought like everything was so carefully planned out and yes it was a little i felt like it was a little slow in the beginning but you know people say that if there's like a lot of exposition but there had to be a lot of exposition you're throwing me into this brand new world that i've kind of forgotten about for the past 30 years um and you're now showing me what has changed what hasn't and what could be possible. I, you know, I, I was really blown away by how meticulous the details were just in terms mm-hmm. of like, she opens this drawer, but not only does she open this drawer, she has to twist this knob and pull this thing out. Like it's very <laughs> specific and exact. And there's, I mean, it's just cool when you watch a movie and you could just tell that people really cared about what everything looked like. The production design was phenomenal. Uh, it really took me away. Um, and yes, the movie is, two hours and 45 minutes long, but, you know, it had to be that long because it was a brand new world and you needed that time to really sit with the characters and sit with the setting and the world that they were in. It definitely did need to be that long. And uh, I I hesitate to say this because I know it's not true for everybody, but it didn't feel that long for me. Okay. Uh, When I was watching this movie, a lot of the times when you watch an almost three-hour film, you kind of get antsy in your seat and you're like, okay, maybe it's wrapping up now. Uh, I don't think I really hit a point with this movie because the slow parts were at the beginning. And by the time it got into the last hour stretch of the film, uh, it was so not even, not necessarily quickly paced, but so well paced. And even the slow paced scenes were interesting and engaging. You know, like you think about Ryan Gosling, Walking through the casino, that's probably the slowest part of this movie. Oh, but... <laughs> and even then, the whole time, you're you're on the edge of your seat yes. waiting for, for the next moment, right. you know? Um, so e- even scenes like that, by the time you get into this film and it, and it brings you into this world, like you said, it takes you by the hand, it sets up its story that it wants to tell, it reminds you what the old movie is about. By the time it gets everything established, you're engrossed in this movie. And, and the, the last hour of this film is just a fun ride to sit through. Uh, It's visually interesting. And the story is perfectly executed to, to the very last second of the film. Uh, They don't explain anything they don't need to explain, but they explain everything they need to perfectly. And I don't know, this movie just works on so many levels for me. Yeah. I really liked it. Yeah. I think I, if I had to come up with a couple complaints about this movie, okay. uh, which I, I really don't have any, um, it's that uh, the Wallace character played by Jared Leto was not really in this movie that much, nope. and he, he didn't he didn't necessarily feel super necessary nope. to the story. 
but when he was in it, it was still interesting, I think. Um, especially the scene where he, and this is probably going to get into spoilers a little bit, so um, if you're going to go watch this movie and you haven't already, turn it off now, because we're going to probably talk about details here. Uh, I think the scene where, where Wallace has Harrison Ford captured and he brings out his replicant version of Rachel, um, I think that's such a powerful scene uh, in its whole execution. So I'm really glad he was there to deliver that point. But at the same time, maybe that's a scene that Love could could have given. Uh, I don't know. Uh, he could could have potentially been written out of this movie, but when he was in it, I thought it was appropriate. Yeah. Uh, I would also say, I mean, this has been people have been yelling at this, yelling about this at the movie all weekend. Um, but pe- I mean, I kind of agree. I thought that the female characters. I mean, they were very cool, and they were giving, like, lots of, like, really cool badass roles and very interesting roles, but not interesting in the sense that they were, like, interesting characters. It was, like, Mm -hmm. they're just, like, these are interesting roles, I guess. Yeah, and I I think, I think, uh, her name was Love, right? The, the evil replicant. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think she was the biggest sin in this movie, was she was the stereotypical action star, femme fatale, you know. No personality uh, whatsoever. Right, and and it made sense for her character because she was a replicant assassin. <laughs> like, right. I I get it, uh, but at the same time, it just it wasn't that interesting of a role for for a female character. I thought the most interesting female character actually in this was Joy, the uh, the hologram girlfriend. Um, I liked what they did with her character, and I liked the level of personality and independence they gave her. And I think the actress did a great job walking this line between programmed robot and, you know, personable character. Right. I think I think her portrayal was very good. And for me, that was the most interesting female role that had significant time in this movie. Uh, I think Robin Wright stole the show every time she was on the screen. Uh, I actually really enjoyed her in this as the police chief. Um, I was surprised when she showed up. I guess I didn't realize she was in this movie. Uh, and she's not in it for very very much screen time but uh but she's really really good at her role when she gives it but uh, but yeah i think a lot of these female roles and actually a lot of the roles in general are kind of archetypical in this movie you've got you know the hard-ass police chief the femme fatale assassin yeah uh the the doting inspiring girlfriend yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the uh prostitute with a heart of gold uh, but then on the other side you know you've got the you've got batista's character and he's a war veteran who's just trying to make a brighter future for people. Ryan Gosling. You know, there's a lot of archetypes in this movie, but they're used effectively in the story, and uh, I think they're all acted pretty well for the most part. So there's definitely some criticism in there about not necessarily making the most original characters, but but all in context, I don't think there's too much wrong with it. Right. I'm just thinking to the scene, you, you, you shouted out the, the scene in the sinking car. Mm-hmm. And he's Ryan Gosling is fighting with Love, the replicant mm-hmm. assassin. And okay, if you were to pause this and take this out of context, it's like wow, like this is really intense violence against a woman, right? But yeah, you buy into it because she's supposed to be this fierce, badass, like equalizer of a of a of a villain, right? And you buy yeah. into it, and you think you're supposed to think like. She's able to handle this, right? She she's a replicant herself, 
But, you know, I think for some people who, I guess, you know, just, I don't, okay, never mind. I, I, I get what you're saying. I really do. And, and I think it's an important point to, to make. But, you know, in, and this is going to get a little off topic here, so I apologize in advance. I think in today's culture where everybody tries to be very sensitive to images being portrayed and very sensitive to the way that characters and roles and genders are portrayed, uh, I get it. You know, you don't want to have a scene that looks like it's in any way kind of making a statement about violence against women. But it's also really important and for us as moviegoers to treat scenes in context of the movies they're in. If we start extrapolating scenes out of context from any movie, uh, there's no, no boundaries to what we can get offended by in cinema. And it's not to say that th- these problems don't exist in the real world and they don't need people to be mindful of, is this portrayed in a way that's okay in a movie? But in the context of this film... Uh, there is no sense of glorifying violence against women. And I I think that's a silly argument to make at best. And I think it's distracting from uh, Blade Runner 2049 uh, as a work and as a movie when we get get bogged down in something like that. That's just my two cents in it. That's fair. No, that is fair. Mm -hmm. Because people, if you screenshot Ryan Gosling's strangling love, it's like, well, it's a very intense scene. But in context to what was happening, like... That was the only way that scene was going to play out. You know what I mean? Exactly. (laughs) And if we start throwing out context, then it's kind of like, well, can we not have females play villains who get their comeuppance at the end of the film? You know, can we not have females play protagonists who get put in intense situations at the hand of a male? You know, like it's all about context in the movie and it's all about what it's saying. And this movie, I think unanimously across the board has a lot of inspirational things to say about, uh, humanity as a whole uh it has a lot of inspirational things to say about uh individualism it has a lot of things to say about even i think the role of motherhood and it's important the importance of you know this idea of procreation it feels almost ridley scott-esque from alien in the sense that it's kind of like got this underlying current of of an obsession with motherhood in it and uh and i think that out of context, yes, you could make an argument that there's some offensive things in here, but I think you can do that with any movie. And I think as a whole, Blade Runner 2049 is very careful with the way it portrays everything. No, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I would say to critics of that. Um, Watch not the movie, that these, basically. Right, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, again, not that these issues don't matter because they absolutely do, but this isn't the hill for you to die on for it because <laughs> there's, there's no real issues in this movie if you sit down and watch it all the way through. Right. So... Actually, if you watch Bla- the original Blade Runner all the way through, you should have a lot more issues with that one because Harrison Ford's romance with Rachel is actually very creepy. In it's that very movie. creepy. Very creepy. Uh, not to say, you know, maybe that's things didn't work out for him later because uh, clearly they... they had, uh, we're going to jump into spoilers here. Uh, clearly they had a kid together and that's like the plot <laughs> of Blade right. Runner 2049. But yeah, the original Blade Runner, their relationship is very, very creepy and very reflective of the role of or the the perceived role of women in the 80s yeah you know she's a very rachel's a very dainty overwhelmed female character who just needs a strong man to take charge of her life and that's what harrison ford does in that and honestly i think that movie is a lot more offensive than 2049 is yeah uh, in that regard so 
uh, it's important to think about the time of these movies and the context of them. And uh, 2049 is amazing. Connie, I do have to ask you, now that we're in spoiler territory, what did you think of the twists slash twist in this movie? Um, well, okay. I guess I could see the alternative coming the whole time, like what the twist was going to be. But I did give in to what the movie wanted me to believe, definitely. And I thought the scene mm-hmm. when they, the first scene where they reveal that Ryan Gosling might not be who we think he is, I thought that was beautifully shot. Like, I'm a sucker for reach any... Where he reaches into the furnace yes. and pulls out the, the horse. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I thought that was beautifully shot because it it wasn't, it wasn't like, it wasn't heavy-handed at all. It was a very beautifully symbolic scene. Mm-hmm. of, you know, a guy literally grasping for his childhood. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that. I got chills watching that scene. I love that. Second twist, um, I think it's just, I mean, they're lucky that they cast Ryan Gosling because I just, like, feel for him anytime he's sad and does the puppy dog sure. guys. But um, the first twist definitely got me. First twist was beautiful. The second twist, I was like, all right, saw that company. But, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I I think that's actually an important point about the execution of this movie, because if it was executed differently, the twists in this movie would feel kind of predictable and unfulfilling. But the fact that they have so much emotional buildup and so much emotional identification with Ryan Gosling's character, uh, it just, it really sells the plot plot points in this. But do you know why they were able to do that? It's because they took their time with the first hour yes. of the film, establishing Ryan Gosling's character. Exactly. And so that's the and, only and, way that you were able to feel for him, even though these scenes were very obvious and were predictable, you know? And and with the ending of the film where um, Harrison Ford gets to meet, uh, again, spoilers, in case you haven't turned this off already, uh, the scene where Harrison Ford gets to meet his daughter for the first time, uh, and Ryan Gosling waits outside dying in the snow, uh, it's got to be one of the most emotionally fulfilling character arcs I've seen from a protagonist in, in yes. a blockbuster in a long time. It, it feels really rare nowadays that we get a protagonist that in one film has a complete character arc that really feels like not only have they accomplished something in the plot of the story, but they have changed and developed as a character. Right. And uh, And this is just so perfectly done in that regard. It is a beautiful character arc. And the images that the movie ends on with Ryan Gosling are just, they're, they're very overwhelming. I think after the credits rolled, nobody in my theater moved for three to yeah. five minutes. Yep. And, it, and it wasn't because we were all trying to watch the credits. It's just because everybody wasn't sure what to do next. You know, you, you finish this movie and you say, well, now what? Right. <laughs> you know, it, it leaves you feeling very overwhelmed in a very positive way. Uh, since we're going full spoiler mode, when at the end Rick Deckard asks Kay slash Joe, um, uh, what am I to you or how are we related? And all Ryan Gosling's character responds is just go inside and see your daughter. Wow, that's heartbreaking. But also, speaking about character development, like, here's a guy seeking for his ultimate purpose, um, holds on to it, gets really excited about it, loses it. Uh, and then ultimately realizes that, okay, maybe he's just not meant to 
have a purpose at all. And then, uh, like, as he just sits down and slowly dies, it's just a really heartbreaking scene. But that was sure. so and, well played. And I, and I think he realizes that, uh, and, and, you know, this is what the movie has played with since the original movie. I think he realized that just because he's a replicant doesn't mean he doesn't have a soul. Like, obviously, like, he feels very complete in what he's accomplished. And I think he realizes that, at that point, maybe he's, you know, being himself is enough and not having to worry about whether he's human or replicant or soul, has a soul or soulless. You know, he, he really feels fulfilled in his individualism. And uh, it's something that he chases the entire movie is to get that identity. And then when he finally creates it and achieves something, uh, it's just very emotionally satisfying to watch him content as he as he dies. It's uh yeah. It's very, very impressive. Um, yeah, there, there's so much good stuff in this. Uh, e- even the scene with uh, Deckard meeting his daughter that, you know, for, for such a predictable kind of moment in the movie, that even gets an, a nice emotional reaction out of me. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, it, it's great. And like I said, the scene where, uh, where Deckard is trapped by Wallace and Wallace shoots the Rachel replicant in the head, that's just a... a very blunt moment, brutal very powerful, yeah. brutal, brutal. But, um, but it, it all plays into the, the emotional buildup of this movie to the, to the very end. And, uh, just so well executed. I, I, I could go on about this movie for a long time. I don't have enough good things to say about it. Uh, like I said, for me, this is hands down the best movie I've seen this year. Yeah, I'll agree. Yep. So go out and watch it if you haven't already. Uh, watch the original if you're so inclined, but know that it is a lot slower than this new one. This new one is a lot more approachable for general audiences, and it sets up the story in a way where, obviously, it helps to have seen the original and know this world and know Deckard's story, but you don't really need to. It explains everything very well, so uh, just jump right in if you want to. I, I think I don't think you'll regret it. Yeah, I agree. You have, right, well, yeah, people definitely have enough time to watch this in, the, in their lives. Don't miss out. You need to see this I, in theaters. Th- right. This is one of, like, what'll probably be, like, maybe two or three movies at the end of the year that you should at least watch this one to get a, a, a scope of where filmmaking stands yeah, in 2017. Sure. Because this is this is the pinnacle of a lot of different departments. Directing, acting, uh production design scoring you know it's all top-notch in this across the board and it's just very complete and it's very thought out and very lovingly made with a good attention to detail and it's it's something that i'd like to see out of more sequels i'm really hoping that uh thor 3 ragnarok and star wars 8 both manage to bring the same level of care to their films in in sequels you know i'd like to see sequels become an interesting thing, not something that's just there to make a profit off the successful original. Yep, I agree. That's my uh, that's my two cents. That's my wrap up. Any last thoughts, Connie? Go see the film. Go see it. Go see it. Uh, it's been out for a while now, and you won't regret it. All right, that's all we have this week. Go see Blade Runner twenty forty nine, and uh, we'll catch you next week with. A brand new episode. All right. Until next week. Goodbye. Bye.